The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Nice to practice with you. Today I'm going to talk about something that's been alive for me in my practice, especially the last few weeks. I just got back from a meditation intensive that was more or less all of July. So um, in that, there was a real emphasis on simple embodiment, embodied practice as a support for open awareness. And it um, re-energized my interest in how the kind of richness, simplicity, intimacy of living in an embodied way can be such a support for mature open awareness, for lessening the defilement, for bringing in the five faculties, for all of these things that Sayadaw Utejaniya talks about as being kind of mature awareness, awareness that has momentum, that has wisdom in it. So that's where we're going to be going today, but I'm going to start with a little very brief story. So once upon a time, an ancient land we now call India and northern Nepal a group of monks, Buddhist monks, sat together talking around tea time. They're in this building. And they were in really animated conversation about practice, just excited and enthused, so much so that they did not notice when their beloved teacher, the Buddha, came to the doorway and just stood there silently listening to them. So you can imagine the scene, right? The master is looking on and the disciples are just into it. Eventually, he clears his throat and they hastily invite him in and do the whole formal preparing a seat and bowing kind of thing. And he asks them what they were talking about. And one of them says, well, we were talking about the benefits of awareness of the body, embodied awareness, or what's often called mindfulness of the body. And he then Um, affirms their conversation and goes on to give a detailed teaching about the great benefits of what I'm calling embodied awareness. If you prefer mindfulness of the body, you can use that terminology in your mind. And in this discourse, which is Majjhima Nikaya, middle-length discourse is 119, the Buddha assures these most committed practitioners that a complete practice of embodied awareness is the vehicle that can take them all the way to freedom. That's quite a statement now, isn't it? Right? The language of Pali talks about bodies, human bodies, using a number of different words. There is a word for corpse, Sarira. There's a word for just the seen body, which I'm not remembering in this post-retreat moment. And then there's the word for the subjective lived experience of our body, the energetic sense, if you will. And that word is kaya, K-A-Y-A, kaya. And that's the experiential body. 
So this discourse in Pali is the Kaya Gatasati Sutta. Kaya Gata means relating to the body. And Sati, as most of you probably already know, means mindfulness or lucid awareness. And Kayagata is pretty much always used in conjunction with the word sati. So that gives us a hint, right? Kaya is the body as we perceive it, embodied awareness itself. It literally means something like lucid awareness related to the body. And in this discourse, this conversation with these enthusiastic monks, the Buddha includes a range of meditations and contemplations about the body, some of which are very popular in our Western society and some of which are almost never taught or talked about. So I'll briefly this morning just touch on the contemplations, um, but mostly contemplations meaning an imaginal kind of component, imagining certain things about our bodies. But mostly I'll talk about practices that are more grounded in direct experience. So the first one you're all familiar with, I'm willing to bet, and that is mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the felt sense of breathing. And that, of course, can take many forms. Some teachers teach breathing recognized at the nose or nostrils or top of the lip. Many in our tradition, Western tradition, teach breathing at the diaphragm or the belly or in that area. The sensations of movement. And then there are some teachers, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu being one of them, who teaches full body breathing, this awareness of all of the energy of the breath through our entire embodied experience. And any of these are completely beautiful and valid ways of anchoring the attention, even as a center point. You know, this group, mostly we talk about open awareness or awareness of awareness. And a light touch in any of these areas can be a nice kind of grounding to a much more expansive open awareness, especially at first. The next set of awareness practices the Buddha talks about our mindfulness of postures. In the ancient discourses, these are classically sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. The Buddha also talks about in-between postures at different points, which pretty much includes everything else, reaching, moving, grabbing, tilting, halfway between standing and being in bed, whatever, right? And next comes a few of these contemplations. Noticing or contemplating the first is the organs and all of the other material inside our bodies. So I say this as a contemplation and it's referred to as a contemplation because often for most of us, this is an imaginative exercise. It's very close to reality but you probably can't on demand just feel your spleen, right? I can't. And unless there's a problem, you're probably not feeling your gallbladder as a discrete entity, right? So 
There's visualization, imagination, or at least concept involved there. Classically, celibate monastics were taught to um, notice the unappealing aspects of our bodies. And this was to curb the natural tendency of especially male monastics towards the distraction of lust, right? For lay people, it can be much more useful to appreciate the absolutely phenomenal interdependent system of our organs and how if each of us are here, they're mostly working. You know, there might be problems here and there and glitches here and there, but they're mostly working if we're able to sit on a Zoom call and participate in meditating. It's absolutely incredible that the skin, heart, lungs, digestive system, endocrine system, circulatory system, nervous system, dance in this very complex kind of matrix without any conscious attention from us at all, most of the time, unless something goes wrong. Right? In fact, if we try to interfere, we would just slow things down and mess them up for the most part. That's not always true. There are advanced yogis who can do phenomenal things with heart rate, etc., But for most of us, it's much kinder and wiser just to appreciate the functioning, to be aware of it when it's obvious to us, and work indirectly if it makes sense to relax, which we do these groups. Most teachers teach some form of relaxation at the beginning of guided meditation, right? So another... um, facet of this body contemplation that the Buddha teaches in the Kaya Katasasi Sutta is contemplating bodies that are no longer living. And this has a special name in Buddhist practice, Maranasati, mindfulness of death. And Maranasati is bigger than contemplation of non-living people or creatures. Um, It can be phrases and intentions, but it can also be back in that day, it was not hard to see non-living beings. It's a much more open society in that way. But even for us in this society, we don't need to go around um, visiting morgues or whatever to do this. Halloween offers a brilliant opportunity here in the U.S. There's all these in recent years, this movement towards um, very elaborate skeleton displays in people's yards, those can also be used as a somewhat humorous contemplation, right? There's another category then that leads naturally from this, which is contemplation of the elements that make up our bodies. So if you think of a decaying leaf, at a certain point, a leaf loses its leafness, right? It might be sort of dust and detritus holding the delicate shape of a leaf towards the end of its leafness. And then a breeze comes along or rain comes along and the leafness just melts right away into the forest floor or the lawn, right? 
It's the same thing for us. Those elements are always a part of us, whether you think of it in terms of the ancient schema of earth, fire, water, air, and space, or in the more contemporary understanding of all of the elements of the periodic table. In either case, we, our bodies are completely composed of elements, yet the elements aren't exactly us and we aren't exactly them, right? They've shared these elements with all of nature because we are part of nature or manifestations of nature. So those are the contemplations and all of those categories point to distinctions, right? Seeing the the body as a collection of collection, a heap of heaps, what's known as the aggregates. The last teaching Andrea gave, I think before she went on sabbatical, was on the five aggregates. There are other distinctions, too, that the Buddha made based on observation of the bodies of people, sentient beings. He noticed but specifically said not to rank people based on skin color or caste. That era is racism, if you will. Instead, he offered the contradistinction of noticing differences between people based on their actions in the world. Their actions define us, behaviors not the evolved minutiae of differences, skin-deep differences or genetic differences. In fact, instead of perpetuating the potent delusion of caste system ranking and, and what we might now consider racist, the Buddha created the Buddhist order in an alternative way. In the Buddhist community, actions in the form of sila, ethical conduct, and meditation were the basis for understanding distinctions between people. Oh, that person, that person loves practicing metta. And that person over there, they're really interested in an analytical meditation, understanding all the different parts of the body or all the different parts of mental experience feel the difference in those distinctions, right? They're talking about value judgment. So that brings me back to mindfulness of the body's actions. As I touched on before, there's the postures and there's also, and I'm riffing here because I don't have my books, my polycanon with me, but there's being in full awareness when moving forward and backward, when reaching or grasping, when going to or fro, when eating, when defecating, urinating, thinking, anything. and pretty much covers the range of experience. And that's the beauty of the body as an anchor. Right? I remember on one retreat, this was some time ago, um, I was really craving chocolate. And I was walking, found my body walking towards the table where the chocolate was being offered. 
And there was such sort of a gravitational pull to mindfulness of the body that my awareness automatically checked in with the body to realize the body was completely content. There was no hunger. There was absolutely no need for anything. And it just stopped the craving in its tracks. Wow. Okay. So it can be this this support. Full awareness also includes all of the sensory input. The sensory input we have. And I've talked about this earlier. I think it was late last year or early this year about the six sense spaces, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, phenomena of mind. There's a way in which full awareness can be like floating in that sea of sense sensations and contacts, very much supported by it in a spacious way. Sometimes awareness can be very analytical and sharp, and other times it can just be like, oh, this is what's happening. And just allowing the soundscape, the sensationscape, to support the awareness in this gentle, open way. The poet David White, I'm just going to quote a very short piece of this poem, says, the body has a voice only for that portion of the body of the world it has learned to perceive. The body has a voice only for that portion of the body of the world it has learned to perceive. This points to perhaps the way that there's a gradual learning unfolding of capacity to perceive more and more of our experience in awareness practices. At first, many people come to the practice, I know I did, feeling kind of like a head on two legs, like those child's drawings, right? And then over the years, gradually, the awareness started to suffuse like, oh, chest, belly, legs. And this interoception, internal awareness becomes more and more subtle, more and more complete, gradually, gradually over time, to different degrees for different people. When that begins to happen in whatever form it happens with just the breath or just specific sensations or just a sense of the whole body in space, then more subtle forms of perception begin to fill, suffuse, pervade our bodies. When the mind gets really quiet, there can be a sense of unification. The Buddha talks about massaging pleasure through the body much like you might massage moisture into dough to make bread. He talks about this sense of a lake that's replenished by an inner spring, a wellspring, and drawing on something within. Can even 
He talks about a sense of contentment or pleasure that steeps and fills and drenches experience. It says it's like submerged lotuses of different colors immersed in water. And the last he talks about is awareness, luminous through the whole body. Like our body is wrapped in a pure white cloth or towel after a refreshing dip. This kind of full awareness of the body can unify the attention. And there can be some really wholesome states of mind and heart that emerge. And when that unification, that sense of being completely present is opened to all of experience, there's a lucidity of seeing, sensing, knowing. It can be very peaceful or holistic. The discourses talk of kaya, embodied, subjective body, as being a channel through which we connect with the world. One of three channels, body, speech, and mind. And when the kaya is fully understood in whatever way, with insight, that channel becomes very clear, very clear, simple, in the moment. It's also then a source of strength, an anchor to the here and now that can reveal nuances of the relationship between our internal speech, our external speech, our attitude of mind and our body. The tiniest unskillful word directed at ourselves or another can cause tension in the tiny muscles of the face or the chest or the hands. And movements such as generosity unselfish love, equanimity can cause a feeling in the body of expansiveness, a pleasant warmth or cool relaxation. So embodied awareness is kind of a guide to attitudes of mind, right? It's a hint, sometimes the first hint. Watching this relationship in ourselves and others can bring a lot of wisdom. And understanding that this relationship exists in all others and between us and others, for me, brings this deep kind of appreciation and compassion for all other embodied sentient beings. It doesn't feel good to be angry most of the time. It doesn't feel good to be contracted. And almost all of us go there from time to time, right? Pretty much. Anyway, the discourses speak about this discourse in, in as well. The Buddha talks about the body itself becoming an organ of sensing and knowing. And that this sensing and knowing is common to all other sentient beings. 
In this way, we're all connected. All of us. So those are my thoughts this morning. Thank you very much for your practice, your kind attention. I'm going to pause the recording so we can do a little bit of free Q&A, and then I will resume it to dedicate the merit with those of you who wish to stay. May the benefits of our practice here together be a cause and conditioning for greater awakening, awareness, love, compassion, and freedom in our lives, in our hearts, and in all of the lives we touch, and in all of the lives they touch, rippling outward and outward. May all beings be happy, safe, and free of suffering. 